This episode is brought to you by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and everyday people about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com slash podcast or wherever you listen. I wish for the day where we don't wake up and have to file another lawsuit. But until we see the president and his administration stop doing things that are illegal, unconstitutional, then we're just going to continue to have to see him in court. Hi, and welcome to Amicus Slate's podcast about the courts and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover all those things for Slate. And this week has been one of those relatively quiet times between the end of oral arguments at the court last month and the monster decisions soon to drop. And so on this week's show, we decided to turn back to the states and their lawyers, uh, particularly with the allegations that have come out this week of sexual violence and misconduct by Eric Schneiderman, New York's attorney general. We wanted to think a little bit about what state AGs do and why they may matter at this moment. So one of my favorite shows last year actually was a conversation we had with Virginia's attorney general, Mark Herring, right after the filing of the travel ban litigation. Uh, I love the show because he talked about he, how he and the state AGs had been hard at work uh, just bringing lawsuits to protect immigrants and the environment and women and other interests that find themselves suddenly imperiled uh, by federal actions in the Trump era. The state AGs have been co-plaintiffs on so many suits against the Trump administration with remarkable success. And we sometimes lose track of all that with uh, everything else that's going on in the world. Maura Healy became the attorney general of Massachusetts in 2015, and she quickly gained a national reputation for taking on the pro-gun groups by enforcing that state's existing assault weapons ban. She also co-chairs the Democratic Attorneys General Association's 1881 initiative, which is an effort to elect more female state AGs. And in an incredibly freighted Time's Up atmosphere, there was just nobody I wanted on the show more to talk about what the lane is for attorneys general, what women bring to office. So with that huge windup, welcome to Amicus Maura Healy, Attorney General of Massachusetts. Great to be with you, Dahlia. And I wonder if you would set the table. I, I think I did this uh, last year in the show with Mark Herring. But for listeners who are used to having a show about the Supreme Court, can you tell us a little about what the state AGs do all day? What, what's your brief? What do you what do you think of as your own job? Well, I think of us as the people's lawyer. And basically across all our states and certainly here in Massachusetts, I view my job as standing up for the rule of law, making sure that we're enforcing the Constitution and laws that are on the books to protect civil rights, to protect our environment, consumers, workers, you name it. And obviously over the last year and a half, given the essential abdication of responsibility by the federal government, and the actions of the Trump administration, 
we've had a really prominent role in being there in the courts, fighting for access to health care, standing up to defend DREAMers in the DACA program, opposing the travel ban, enforcing environmental laws in the face of, of actions by Scott Pruitt. And most importantly, I think as a lawyer, Dahlia, to make sure that in this country, particularly at this time, we have folks there who are uh, there to uphold the rule of law. Uh, fundamental foundation of our democracy and our government. So I wonder if we can start with the issue of guns, partly because we talk about it so very much on this show. Uh, I think the Supreme Court has been, uh, you know, with the Heller decision and then I think the silence post-Heller has been, I think, the locus of so much confusion uh, in the public notion of what the boundaries of the Second Amendment are. And 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 I wanted to talk to you more because you just won one of the most consequential federal gun cases in Massachusetts uh, o- over the state's assault weapon ban. So, so I think I wanted to start by asking you, what is it about, you know, you decided to take on this issue, the sale of AR-15s in Massachusetts in 2016. Can, can you a little bit lay out for us why you decided this was going to be a huge knockdown drag out for you as soon as you took office? Well, you know, combating gun violence, Delia, is something that I made a priority when I started as attorney general. And, you know, that took a number of forms. One of the first things we did was send a letter to gun dealers in Massachusetts, reminding them about our laws. I worked with doctors and our medical society to train and develop materials for doctors to talk to their patients about gun safety. We've enforced a number of consumer safety regulations that apply to handguns. And we brought some civil enforcement actions against gun dealers that were violating our laws. We also were having to defend challenges by the NRA and the gun lobby to strong laws that are on our books here in Massachusetts. You know, laws that, for example, allow our police chiefs to determine whether somebody's suitable to get a license to carry. Uh, That was a law that was challenged by the NRA early on. We were successful in upholding it. And that's important. One of the reasons Massachusetts has the lowest gun death rates in the country is because we have strong laws on the books and we're going to enforce them. Here's what happened, though, on the assault weapons ban. I'll never forget the day when I awoke to the news on a Sunday morning about what was then the nation's largest mass shooting. It was a shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. I went into the office the next day and I asked my team if it was possible to purchase that weapon in Massachusetts, the weapon that had been used to kill so many people in Orlando. Even though Massachusetts has had an assault weapons ban on the books since 1998, That law was nevertheless being violated, and 10,000 assault weapons were sold in the state of Massachusetts that year alone. So faced with that information, I simply did my job, which is to enforce the law. We sent word out immediately to gun dealers that it's not lawful to sell assault weapons, and we put the manufacturers on notice as well, because what had happened since that law was passed was this. The law in 1998, which incidentally was passed by a Democratic legislature and signed into law by a Republican governor, this had bipartisan support, basically banned a list of assault weapons by name and then banned copies or duplicates of those weapons. And manufacturers had played this game where they basically made new forms of AR-15s and then were selling these in Massachusetts unlawfully as, quote, 
Massachusetts compliant. I sent out notice that we viewed that to be a violation of the law. I was immediately sued in court. But as you say, a couple of weeks ago, we received a really strong decision from a federal court here that made it clear and applied Heller and applied Justice Scalia's reasoning and said definitively that the Second Amendment does not protect assault weapons, does not protect large capacity magazines, and that we have every right as a state to take actions to ban those kinds of weapons, and it does not violate the Second Amendment. That's really important because for far too long, the NRA and the gun lobby have tried to write all the rules. And here it's clear that as a matter of constitutional law, constitutional law set out by no less than Justice Scalia, we are uh, not only right in enforcing the law, but that the Second Amendment does not protect these kinds of weapons, which was frankly consistent with rulings out of other circuit courts around the country on this very issue. I think it's what you're saying is so important that I I just want to I almost want to hear you say it again, because I think that when we think about the national discourse after every massive gun incident, what we hear from an awful lot of legislators is our hands are tied and they're tied both because the Second Amendment precludes any regulation and because Heller further precludes any regulation. And what you're saying is that this was one in a whole line of cases that we've seen post Heller, post McDonald where very, very sophisticated judges are doing the work of saying that's not what the Second Amendment says. And by the way, it's not what Heller says, that we can do an awful lot of regulation or we can uphold regulations that the states are effectuating and not run afoul of either of those two things. So I guess my question to you is, why don't the American people get that message, Maura? Why is it every single time we start again from, you know, control, alt, delete, there's nothing we can do about the Second Amendment? Well, I hope that a decision like this helps to get the message out. I mean, the fact is that you can respect the Second Amendment while also taking steps in your state to protect public health and public safety. These aren't mutually exclusive prerogatives. And in fact, Heller uh, stood for the proposition that there may be limits, appropriate limits placed um, uh, with regard to, 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 to weapons and guns and the like. And, you know, I think what's really important here is that not only have we seen a successive set of, of wins in court, our office certainly has over the last three years uh, in the face of any number of challenges to our gun laws, but also nationally we see these circuit courts uh, ruling just time after time that, that uh, the Second Amendment isn't isn't something that says you can never ban anything or regulate anything at any time in any place. But here's the difference, though, Dahlia. You know, I've come to know so many of the families, victims of, of Pulse, victims of Sandy Hook, um, of uh, other mass shootings. More recently, I spent a lot of time with the Parkland students and families. Um, in fact, I was down at the march with them in D.C. And one of the things that I think I'm seeing is people now – are taking great heart in the fact that we're able to have success in courts and we're able to show that you can, in fact, act as a state. You can do things and it's not going to interfere with people's Second Amendment rights. And that's just something we need to continue to talk about. You know, I, I, I spent time at the DC March with my friend Mark Barden, who lost his son Daniel to Sandy Hook. And Mark is a wonderful advocate who's all over the country. Um, and has been for a long time. And, you know, it was a Bushmaster 
uh, that killed his son. And that was the very weapon that, that we saw being sold here in Massachusetts when I decided that we needed to enforce our assault weapons ban. And so I've spoken with him since the ruling, and I think, you know, he is somebody who has long recognized that this is the way it should be um, under the law and the Constitution. But I think for him and for others, I want this to be just an affirmation that uh, there is a way forward. We can take action to protect the health and safety of our young people and that it's constitutional. So, so I, I love one of the things that you're saying, and it, it checks some of the myopia that I have on this show where I continue to say, you know, why won't the court take on a post-Heller case? I mean, they've declined to clarify after McDonald. They've declined to clarify anything about the contours of, you know, what's in and what's out of the basket of what is permissible gun regulation. And I, I love what you're saying because I think what you're saying is, oh, Dahlia, don't excoriate the court. It's fine if they just <laughs> sit on their hands because the state's uh, – and the lower courts can handle this and they can construct a kind of architecture to fill in that space. That's what you're saying, right? I think so, both on a state level here uh, where we've taken actions and then, you know, whether they've worked themselves through uh, and their way through our state courts or more recently here in the federal courts, you know, application of existing precedent is is what's happening as it should happen in our judicial system. I may not agree with uh, some of the reasoning in Heller or its understanding of the history of the Second Amendment. But Heller is now the law of the land and controls cases involving Second Amendment claims. But importantly, this decision we received applying Heller makes very clear that it is appropriate for states to take action to pass laws like the assault weapons ban or other laws that we have in place that address issues of gun violence. It's lawful, it's legal, and it doesn't undermine the Constitution or the Second Amendment. You touched on this a minute ago, but but I know you have been really viciously attacked by the NRA in all sorts of contexts. And I wondered if you would reflect for a second on what the Parkland kids have done and the high school students that, you know, I, I saw when you announced this decision, you had high school activists behind you. What What is it that they're doing to pierce the, the status quo that the NRA had constructed for such a long time, uh, and I think you've just pointed out, you know, that's that's starting to look a little more threadbare. What is it about these students or this moment that allowed them to puncture something that seemed only a year ago a, an immutable conversation frame that the NRA had constructed? Well, I think it is a, a powerful moment right now, and I think that there is real possibility and an opportunity for change. Part of this is this is a generation, remember, that has grown up with mass shootings and active shooter drills. Many of the Parkland students were born um, after Columbine, of course, but have, have, have lived through any number of mass shootings. And have seen the failure on the part of their leaders in government to actually do something to keep them safe in school. And, you know, they're, they're calling out the BS. I mean, that's, that's what they're doing. What they're saying, I think, is resonating with the majority of Americans, irrespective of party, frankly, when it comes to gun sense and common sense reforms that can and should be in place. And they are not going to let up. They're also effective with social media in this digital age, and they have a great way to communicate. But, you know, bottom line, I think that is that these young people um, have lived with the experience for 
their entire lives. And, you know, that's why I think they are so effective as advocates. That's why I think you see the reaction. Look at the reaction too, by the way. Look at the looks by pension funds and investment firms. Look at decisions by companies like Bank of America uh, to say we're not going to lend to the to the manufacturers of assault rifles. Uh, you know, these are powerful steps. And as you say, we weren't seeing this a year ago. The advocacy and the work in the courts has got to continue. We're certainly going to be there to defend challenges to laws. Uh, and so far, we've been successful. We've also got to the work, I think, to push for other measures. And one of the things I'm focused on here is a law that would help keep guns out of the hands of people who are a danger to themselves or others. A law that would allow a family member or a member of law enforcement to go into a court, um, make sure that due process is fulfilled, but basically petition the court for the removal of a gun from an individual who, as I say, is a danger to themselves or to others. That to me is, is, is a common sense uh, idea that the vast majority of Americans get behind and understand. So we've got to both defend laws that are on the books that are working, but also move forward with with reform. And I'm a big believer that, you know, it can't just be state by state. We really need some national reforms to to address this issue because the majority of the guns that are turning up in crimes here in Massachusetts, for example, are coming in from other states. Can you talk a little bit more about this red flag law? I, I know that the Massachusetts legislature is considering it. Um, the NRA vociferously opposes this, right? It, it sounds like something they were talking about after Parkland, but they hate this law, correct? Well, I, my experience with the NRA is they um, they don't want to see any regulation, any effort at any time to put any limits around uh, guns. And you know, again, I think that they're totally out of line with the vast majority of Americans who, you know, understand that, look, 62% of gun deaths in this country are suicide. How many times, how many stories have we heard about uh, those suffering from domestic violence and, and, and the impact of presence of guns in the home and how much more likely it is that a woman, for example, is going to end up dead as a result. We've seen mass shooting after mass shooting. Um, you know, I think that, that the, the idea behind these extreme risk protection orders, the so-called red flag laws, are really common sense. Why wouldn't we put everything on the table and allow through a court petition where there would be due process of uh, uh, a gun owner's uh, right there, why wouldn't we allow a process that may save his life and certainly may save the lives of, of others? Why wouldn't we do this? How much more bloodshed do we need to see? Particularly when you look at you know some of what we've seen lately, whether it's Waffle House or uh, any other number of shootings that have been in the news, so often involving, of course, people who who really um, uh, present with issues that, you know, if there had been a mechanism, if there had been a means to go in and at least ensure that guns were taken away uh, from him, you know, might have made a difference. Is it going to stop every shooting? No. But the point is, what can and should we be doing to reduce the likelihood of shootings, to reduce the likelihood of gun violence? 
can I ask you about um, you are looking into ExxonMobil and what they did and didn't know about climate change. Uh, and and I know you've uh, prevailed in terms of getting access to uh, some of their information. But I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the claim that Exxon was making that you were biased uh, and shouldn't uh, even be able to investigate. And I, I guess it's just such it's so of a piece, Mora, with this larger conversation we're having now around the country where anybody in the legal uh, field who says anything is immediately uh, accused of bias, even though I think what you were saying at the time was was factual, right? Well, it, it, of, of course, and, and the argument was ridiculous. But look, uh, whether, you know, in that instance, it was Big Oil and Exxon making pretty ridiculous claims that both a, a New York judge threw out and recently a judge here in, in Massachusetts throughout. But I think what you saw there is an attempt to try to bully. Um, you see the same thing, frankly, with the NRA. I mean, the NRA sued me in my office uh, multiple times on our enforcement of the assault weapons ban. Um, unfortunately, that's what you see sometimes is an effort to to shut down investigations, to keep us from doing the job that we are elected to do. Um, and, and, and it's just a scare tactic. But, you know, fortunately, we do have the law, we have the Constitution, and we have the courts. And, you know, we're going to continue to do our homework, make our case. But it certainly is the case that uh, you find yourself sometimes in, in crosshairs and uh, at the other end of a lot of money um, and a lot of special interests. But as I say, the role of a state AG is to be the people's lawyer. So we're not uh, not used to, to dealing with the likes of those entities. And so far, you know, we've been successful in beating them back in court. Hello, dear Amicus listener. Because I like you, here's a little tip. If you join our membership program, Slate Plus, you can enjoy this and all of Slate's wonderful podcasts ad-free. Imagine you'd be supporting our work at the same time, ad-free, and supporting journalism when, when there is a free trial to be found at slateplus.com slash amicus. And now back to the show. And we are back now with Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healy. I've seen so many glossy magazine spreads about, you know, the state AGs and the Trump resistance and, you know, what the the various attorney generals in the in the states are doing. And I wonder if that framing has come back to hurt you in some fashion. You know, the notion that you are like in some Star Wars episode where you're the resistance and they're the bad guys. I, I, I know you're careful enough. I mean, I've, I've seen your work and I've heard you speak to try to thread the needle between kind of calling this Trump administration and its Justice Department and some of these initiatives what they in fact are, but also not being a, a resistance lawyer, I, I'm trying to, I guess I'm asking, you know, partly in in, in uh, my own interest as a journalist, because I think we're trying to figure this out. But what, where is the line between calling out essential truth, saying, you know, this is wrong, this is immoral, and I'm trying to be a lawyer in a fact-bound system and a pretty small-c conservative system, and uh, it doesn't help when people are tagging me as part of the resistance? Yeah. Well, I, I want to be clear. I think what this is about is um, is upholding the rule of law and enforcing laws that are out there to protect people's rights. You know, I have to admit there are some days where I wake up and I feel like I am in an alternate universe, given some of what we've seen in terms of actions taken. But I'm very grounded in what what 
my job is and what we need to do. And I am not about resisting for the sake of resistance. The reason that we sue Trump on uh, the contraception rule is because ensuring that women have access to the reproductive health care that they need is a, uh, a civil rights issue and an economic imperative. The reason that we sue the Trump administration over their attempts to roll back environmental regulations is because we have an obligation to combat climate change and those actions undermine our clean energy economy and investments, particularly here in Massachusetts. We've sued to defend access to Healthcare and the ACA. Why? Well, in Massachusetts, we were a state that pioneered universal access to healthcare. That's something we need to stand up for. We're suing to defend students and protect them from predatory practices. Unfortunately, Secretary DeVos has sided with the for-profit school industries and those who are looking to exploit students. But my job as a consumer advocate is to make sure that we're there protecting students. So the reason we've seen lawsuit after lawsuit against this administration, whether it's on the census, where they're trying to essentially suppress the vote, or on the travel ban, which really interferes with, you know, in Massachusetts, we've got a, a, a global workforce and a global economy. We've got colleges and universities and teaching hospitals that depend on people being able to come in to and out of this country and contribute their skills and the like. The reason we're taking action is because the actions taken by the Trump administration hurt our residents, hurt our businesses, hurt our economy. So that's what drives this work. I want for the day, I wish for the day where we don't wake up and have to file another lawsuit. But until until we see um, the president and his administration stop doing things that are illegal, unconstitutional, then we're just going to continue to have to see him in court. The response to that is, how is this different, Maura, from when uh, Greg Abbott, who was then the Texas AG, used to say, you know, in 2013, he used to say, I go into the office, I sue the federal government, I go home. You know, he just felt like it was his mandate to sue Obama every week. Differentiate what you've just told me from the claims of the state AGs who pretty much devoted their lives to dismantling every everything Obama tried to do in his presidency. Well, I think that the position of, of, of somebody like Greg Abbott is pretty pathetic. You know, if you have an elected official and that that's your sole prerogative is to to go and, 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 and pretend that every day your job is not to fight for the residents of Texas and, and, and work on behalf of them, but essentially just to be there to stymie uh, the president and block him at every turn, unburdened by the law, unburdened by the facts, um, unburdened by the reality of whatever was presented at a given time. That's a different situation from what we've got here. As I say, you know, the actions taken by the Trump administration that we have sued on, um, me and other uh, state AGs, are driven by what does the law say? How is that in violation of the law, what the administration's doing? And, and what's the impact on our residents, on our businesses, and our economy? That's what's driving our work. And I think that, you know, one of the things that you've seen, Dahlia, is in contrast to the actions of Republican AGs in many instances years ago, you know, we, we're winning in court. We're winning in court because we're right on the facts and we're right on the law. And more importantly, it's our job to stand up for our states and our interests. And that's what we're going to continue to do. What's also troubling here, though, you know, not only is the federal government not enforcing laws that are there to protect clean air, clean water, 
uh, stand up for civil rights, ensure that workers aren't abused on the job. This is an administration, a federal administration that's doing something unprecedented and actually fighting us states in our own courts to say that we don't have the authority to enforce state laws that are there to protect consumers and workers and students. Again, we've been successful in getting uh, great rulings from courts rejecting that, but it shows you what's going on. And I think, you know, that's something different that we haven't seen um, and something that, that is really troubling. That's on this show. We've been tracking the Justice Department flipping sides on litigation, you know, like unprecedented numbers of cases where suddenly they're on the other side. And I think that's uh, of a piece with what you're describing. And I think it's so important what you're saying. It's not just uh, that the state AGs are winning uh, in the courts, but also, I think, more pointedly winning, you know, with judges who are across the ideological spectrum. You know, it's not we're not seeing only uh, judges appointed by Democrats or only, you know, uh, judges elected uh, by Democrats uh, uh, signing off on this. This is a it seems to transcend ideology by the time it gets to courts. But it it raises this question that I, I've been sitting with since the travel ban was argued uh, two weeks ago at the Supreme Court. And that is, what do you do when judges, we expect them to be the bulwark uh, in tandem, say, w- with folks like you who are bringing the lawsuits, but we want the judges to step into this and fully occupy the role of law and order judges and justices. And yet, I, I think if I read the travel ban argument, and probably most of us read it the same way, it seems as though the justices are, are wiped out, Maura. They're just tired. They're tired and they want things to go back to normal. And things that shocked and appalled you a year and a half ago at the airports are starting to make judges tired. And I wonder what the message is when you're confronting a judicial system that really at the end of the day prizes, you know, normalcy and civility and, you know, incremental change and precedent in a moment that you have described yourself as unprecedented and unlike anything we've seen. Are are we rooting for the wrong heroes? Are the judges capable of doing the lift that you're asking them to do? Uh, Absolutely. I have great faith in our judiciary. I do think that the point you make about transcending politics and partisanship is so important. I mean, that's why we have the courts, and that's why our founders set up the system the way they did. Um, We look to the courts to apply the, the rule of law, and that is not a Democrat issue, a Republican issue. It's an American issue, an American principle and value. The judges and the judiciary and the courts will continue to do their job. We all have a role to play in this. So I have faith in that. Um, and, you know, also, you know, we have the, the, the process, too, through the ballot box, another pros- part of our system. And, and certainly, I think that the activism and the engagement and the activity uh, around, around elections and particularly around this fall is also going to be important. Uh, what you're hearing in the background, uh, dear listeners, are sirens. They are not coming from Maura Healy. <laughs> they are an occupational hazard in her work. Uh, Maura, can I ask you a question that that has also been weighing on me and uh, is part of the reason I wanted you on the show this week? And you, you've you've been part of a push to have more uh, women uh, become attorneys general. We are looking at uh, Trump judicial slates 
in the federal district courts and the circuit courts that is overwhelmingly white and male. Can, can you just give me a short declarative or long uh, declarative answer on why it matters to have uh, women in these highest echelons of the legal profession and the judicial profession? Well, I think that whether you're talking about Congress, whether you're talking about governor's seats, whether you're talking about AGs, you want to have people in office that actually reflect and represent the communities that they're elected to serve. And look at the numbers. I mean, the numbers are pathetic across the board, whether you're talking about Congress or state legislatures, governors, AGs. As an AG, I'm particularly focused on recruiting and identifying women to run for this office to be the people's lawyer. Why? Well, it's important as a matter of representation. It's also important, though, because this is how policies are made. This is how uh, decisions, you know, uh, are, are made about what lawsuits to bring, how to frame arguments. You know, I, I think back at that picture with, with Vice President Pence and all those men standing around the table debating and discussing women's access to reproductive health care. To me, that that picture said it all. The complete absence of women, and we could have a we could broaden that to people of color um, or other folks who have long been marginalized and left out of the mix. The only way we're going to get there is by having more women in office, more people of color in office. This is how policies are made. This is how laws are made. And my view is we we need uh, to really work hard to change the culture, to get more women out there running, um, and to, to get more people out there supporting women. So, so that brings me reluctantly to my last question, which is, um, I think we have to talk about Eric Schneiderman for a minute. And, and you've been paired with him so often as these sort of two superheroes of, of uh, this last year and a half. And I think a lot of women are feeling trapped between their support for Me Too and this movement and, and all the good work that you and Attorney General Schneiderman have been doing. And I, I wonder... Um, how you're threading that yourself. I, I, I've seen awful articles tagging you for his conduct for some reason. And I also have seen articles putting the entire burden of all the state AG work on your shoulders now. And I wonder, how do you pick your way through this and tell us going forward how to make sense of it? Well, look, um, I will say at the outset that um, the work of an attorney's general office is far bigger and broader than any attorney general who is uh, heading the office at a particular time. You know, at the end of the day, I know that it's the men and the women in my office, just as it's the men and the women who serve in the New York AG's office, who are out there every day doing the hard work, enforcing the laws, protecting the rights of all Americans. And that is why I am confident that um, investigations and casework will continue uh, out of the New York office. It's certainly true that we've worked quite extensively with the New York AG's office. That will continue, I know, and I look forward to working with the next Attorney General of New York. Obviously, the allegations made and, and reported are incredibly troubling and disturbing, shocking. And my heart goes out to the women who bravely came forward to tell their stories. Um, you know, to me, it was absolutely clear that uh, Eric Schneider needed to, to resign from office, but I know that I'm going to continue to work with that office, that my colleagues are going to continue to work with one another, um, and that we're not going to miss a beat in terms of what we need to do to stand up for the rights and the interests of our states and our residents. 
I think it's been an incredibly important time right now. The number of women who've come forward, the number of women who are running for office, the number of women who are speaking out and standing up. And I want to do everything I can to change the culture of violence against women in this country, to change uh, the imbalance of power that's existed for far too long. And that's something I'm going to find and, and look to find ways to do um, every day that I have the opportunity to serve in public office. And do you have a sense that folks are are still with you? They're still strong and resilient and engaged? Or do you worry that they're slowly going on to screen save and watching reality television? <laughs> uh, no, I think people are, 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 are absolutely as invested and as engaged as ever. You know, I've been doing town halls over the last year or so here in Massachusetts. And I've also been doing some traveling around the country. I have to say, one of the things that I'm so hopeful about and, and optimistic about and inspired by is the fact that when I'm out doing these town halls, people are turning out who've never been engaged in politics before, who are tuning in and wanting to get involved and wanting to find their agency in all of this. And, you know, that's a wonderful thing to see. And we need to encourage that. We need to support that. And we need to hopefully real, realize the benefits of that, especially come fall, where I hope we see record turnout in elections across the states, up and down the ballot, and a real statement that, you know, at the end of the day, uh, in this country, the Constitution does not begin with the words, I, the president. It begins with we, the people. And that's what I see happening across this country. Um, it may be messy. It may be ugly. It, we've certainly gone through a really difficult and challenging time. But, you know, let this be an opportunity for movement and for energy and a way forward. And I'm, I'm optimistic and inspired by what I'm seeing. Even in the midst of, of what we've had to confront, um, I'm inspired. I love what you're saying because I think you're you're separating what I've been thinking for the last year and a half of the dialectic is who are the grown-ups and who are the children and you're saying something I think much more profound which is who stands with the rule of law and who doesn't and that I think that's a that's a really hopeful thing uh, for people who think about the law the way you and I do. Maura Healy is the Attorney General of Massachusetts and Maura thank you I know you're busy it is such a joy to have you on the podcast thanks for joining. Well Great to be with you. And with that, we are all done for this edition of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is amicus at slate.com. And we love your letters. Thank you for all of them. You can also find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Steve Lichtai is our executive producer, and June Thomas is managing producer of Slate Podcast. We will be back with you with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger 
for the ones who get it done.